right, so how many of you have ever read a book or you're watching a movie and you're kind of getting your opening pages of a book? And you start to think, maybe this isn't the best book I picked, or maybe this isn't the best movie I watched. And you're kind of wondering, how many pages am I going to give the book before I turn it down? Or how many more minutes of this movie am I going to watch before I say, I'm going to turn this thing off? You know we all experience that in our life. I mean, how many, I'm sure everybody here has experienced that. And then you get that dreaded question of, how much longer do I give it? Because it better start picking up pretty soon. I think we all know that feeling. And fortunately, the book of Acts in the New Testament is completely different than that experience. The book of Acts is exciting, it's fun, it's encouraging. I think the book of Acts is probably one of my favorite books of the Bible. Just because it's kind of exciting and there's a lot of anticipation in the book of Acts. Here you're only four verses into the book of Acts and Jesus tells the disciples that God's going to give them a gift. Now that brings a lot of anticipation. What kind of gift is God going to give to you? That's fun. That's exciting. And then in verse 9, your disciples are talking with Jesus and suddenly what does he do? He starts ascending into heaven. Now that doesn't happen every day. Now, in our culture, we would think, okay, how are they doing that? What IT technology is going on? But this is 2,000 years ago. They are watching a man literally ascend into heaven and watching a cloud come. That's pretty exciting. That's only nine verses into the book of Acts. And then what do the disciples do after that? They all gather together for a 10-day prayer meeting because they want to. And they're enjoying their 10-day prayer meeting, and they're getting along together, and it's a beautiful prayer meeting and suddenly the holy spirit comes in and fills the room that they're in and not only does it fill the room but it changes the environment there's wind can you imagine being in that room just to feel the power of the holy spirit come in because of the wind and then what is it that god do then he fills each of the disciples with the holy spirit that was an exciting day and we're still only in chapter 2. And it keeps getting bigger. Then you get to chapter, chapter 3. And Peter, of all people, is preaching this message with boldness. And 3,000 people are added to the church today. Not only did they say, I want to follow Jesus, but they went all the way and they got baptized. They were pretty serious about it. Not only that, but the Bible says that the, the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching they devoted themselves to fellowship they devoted themselves to sharing meals and they devoted themselves to the lord's supper and it says a deep sense of awe came over them as they watched the disciples perform miracles and then you get to chapter three and then what happens a man who's been paralyzed for 40 years is prayed for and he can walk wow Three chapters into this book, and it's just signs and wonders and miracles. I think we're all like, yeah, I want to be part of that church. I think we're all like, yeah, I'll go to that church. That'll be fun. Well, you get to chapter 4, you're like, oh, wait a minute. You get arrested for doing what Jesus tells you to do. Okay, maybe I don't like that part, but I think what happens is that we're captivated by the early church's response to being thrown in jail and arrested. They get out of jail and what do they do? They pray that God would give them more boldness to preach. They don't slow down. They don't back down. They say, God, would you give us more boldness? And God 
would you perform more signs? Would you perform more miracles? They just continue to press in because they were united. And they wanted to see Jesus' kingdom come. And the church grew to over 5,000. That's remarkable. And then comes chapter 5. And suddenly in chapter 5, the first 11 verses, you start to think, well, maybe I don't want to be part of this church. This church takes sin pretty serious. This church takes integrity very serious. And suddenly you start to think, huh, maybe this isn't the exact church for me. We love to be part of the Acts church, chapters 1 through 4. But maybe not chapter 5, church. Let me read the first 11 verses and you'll understand why. It says, but there was a certain man. When a chapter starts out with the word but, you got to pay attention. (laughs) But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He bought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but you were lying to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and they took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for this land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the Spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who had heard what had happened. See, if you're like me, you read this section of Scripture and you say, wow, That seems kind of harsh. That seems kind of like a pretty serious consequence. I mean, after all, they gave some of the money. It doesn't seem like that big of a lie, and boom, they're dead. And I think our first reaction is, why? Why did this happen? And we all have a lot of whys do we want to know. Did this happen? Now, my second thought was, I certainly hope I don't have to preach a message on this verse. I was just casually reading my Bible Monday morning. And I read this. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do this. No, I'm going to pass this. I mean, it's Memorial Day weekend. The few that come to church, I mean, come on. I'm not going to preach this verse. I mean, I, let's do some happier verses and some good promises. But during the first few weeks, the first few days of last week, I kept drawing back to this verse, back to this section of Scripture. Because I'm like all of you. I have a lot of questions. But the longer I sat with this verse, the more I realized how much compassion and how much mercy is in this verse. 
a lot of what God is doing in this verse is he's protecting the church. He's protecting the church so he can continue to empower the church. What happened that day was strategic. Some people think, was God just having a bad day? This was a strategic move of God to protect the church and to keep the church filled with signs and wonders and miracles. Now I'm going to read a great quote by R.C. Sproul. This kind of quote, this is one of those you're like, man, that guy can say in six sentences what it's going to take me a half hour message. You know, I thought about, I thought, you know, I should probably just like hand this quote out to all of you and say, okay, y'all, you write this in good penmanship like they would do to me in fourth grade four times in your notebook and then you can go out for recess. Because if you just remember these six or seven little sentences, you know, you're good to go. So after I read these, if you're like, yep, I got it, you can leave. But then you're going to miss the last song. So I got bait to keep you here. Listen to this. Listen to how somebody can be so smart. God is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we're shocked and we're offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become bolder in our sin. We delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that he's powerless to punish us. The supreme folly is that we think we will get away with our revolt. That's pretty powerful. That the, stream, the, the supreme folly is that we think we'll get away with our sin. There's so much packed into this little quote that I'm going to read part of it again. God is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he's so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we're shocked and offended by it. I mean, that is so true. I mean, if you're like me, when you read these, this, this quote, you're kind of shocked that they died. We kind of feel bad for Ananias and Sapphira. We're like, oh, that's too bad. Guy, okay, I wanted to get another chance. We usually don't stop and think, wow, what they did was really wrong. That's usually not our first go-to of, wow, that was pretty offensive. That was a big sin. I mean, I, don't, I think we failed to remember that Ananias and Sapphira, they were probably there just a few weeks earlier when Jesus died on the cross. They saw what Jesus did. They saw what God did for them. They saw that God sent Jesus. And what's their response? They come to church and lie. And that quote goes on to say, is we forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed, Instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become bolder in our sin. I've done that. I would guess at least a couple other people in here have done that before. You just grow bolder in your sin. 
because God didn't dramatically stop you like he did to this couple. Then finally, we delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that he's powerless to punish us. The the supreme folly is that we think we'll get away with our revolt. We do that. Just last year during COVID, I had a, a, a person call me tell me they had this encounter with God. And I believe they did. It was this beautiful story. You told me kind of what God did and his response and his family's response. And I was excited for him. I'm like, yeah, this might be what God is going to use to help get him back on track. And his takeaway to me was that he thought God was just validating to him the way he was living his life. That it was God's way of saying, it's okay how you live your life. I'm just going to bless you and take care of you no matter what you do. It's so easy for us to become deceived by our own sin. It's so easy to kind of ignore our sin and think God's powerless to do anything about it or that God doesn't care about it. That's why I think the placement of chapter 5 is so incredibly strategic in the Bible. It wasn't just there randomly. We got to put the story somewhere. But these 11 verses were strategically placed See, we love chapters 1 through 4. Everything is going great in this church. Everything is going wonderful in this church. And suddenly, chapter 5, the church is having a problem with integrity. That's the very first problem we recorded in Scripture that the church had was integrity. It wasn't a theological dispute. It was an integrity dispute. And the sad thing is, this had been totally been avoided. This didn't have to happen. This couple, they didn't have to sell the property. As Peter said, nobody forced them to sell the property. Nobody told them they had to give the money from the property to the church. It had been a good thing for them to tithe on the profit that they made, but nobody was forcing them to do it. Nobody was holding them accountable to do it. Everything that they did was their own choice. See, they were pretending. They were pretending to be someone on the outside that they were not on the inside. And Peter doesn't give them a whole lot of flexibility in this. Peter treats them like this is an invasion of the kingdom of darkness into the church and it must be stopped. He's serious. This is sin. He confronts them because this cannot be part of the church culture. And suddenly you see them die. And I think a lot of us wonder, wow, if God did that to every single person in the church who had an integrity problem, there won't be many people left in the church. I think all of us would have been gone at one point in our life. But in this passage, God is saying, I'm taking integrity very, very serious. See, the dictionary would say the integrity is the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles and moral uprightness. It's a state of being whole and undivided. Pete Scazzaro says integrity is when who I am on stage is the same as who I am backstage. It's when there's no difference between the person inside of me and the person outside of me. See, this couple there are putting up a front. 
they wanted everybody in the church to think that they were just like Barnabas. See, chapter 4 ends by telling us this few little verses about this man named Barnabas. We don't know much about him, but I think we all like him. We all would like to be like him because his name means an encourager. Wouldn't you all like to be known? Yeah, what, what, what's his reputation? This is an encourager. We all love to have that. And so chapter 4 ends and talks about this man who was an encourager and he gave all the money to the church and this other couple thought, well, we can be just like Barnabas. But they didn't want to do the work. They didn't want to put the work into making sure their insides matched their outsides. See, often people will call this comfortable Christianity. It's the type of Christianity that, that demands nothing from you because your life really hasn't changed. Some might even call it counterfeit Christianity because really there's been no change. A late theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, has to say this. He calls what's happening cheap grace. This is a great definition. This will be part two of your assignment to write in your notebook. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus living and incarnate. That's cheap grace. That's what this couple wanted. They just wanted to lie and pretend. But again, it looks like it's not that big of a sin. I mean, I've seen, I've, I've seen bigger. Why? Why did God make such a big deal out of this situation? You know, the, the apostle Luke, he could have easily avoided these 11 verses. He didn't have to include them. Obviously, he let, left out a lot of other details out of the book of Acts. I mean, relatively short considering everything that went on why did god inspire luke to keep this in the book of acts so i think these this passage is meant to challenge our definition of sin it had been easy for that early church to say hey jesus just died on the cross a few weeks ago we kind of got that past we can do whatever we want Apostle Paul talks a lot about that in the book of Romans. It's been easy for that early church to think, yeah, sin's no big deal. Let's just do whatever we want to do. But Luke confronts that. See, I think we'd all agree that in our American Christianity community, we continue to lower the bar on what is sin. What is called sin in the Bible seems to be called nowadays options. Our culture has really minimized the definition of sin. And I think Luke wants us to get rid of a low view of sin. Luke wants us to take a posture towards sin and understand that sin has consequences. See, the book of Romans, Romans 6 verse 23, tells us that the wages of sin is death. What happened to this couple is not that big of a surprise. That's the consequence of sin. But kind of in our culture, we kind of take this attitude that the wages of sin is that God must ignore our behavior. We kind of expect that nowadays. See, in a worldview, 
The definition of sin is collapsing in our church and by God's grace and mercy, he's showing us in Acts 5, that's not going to work out. We need to have a foundation in our church that's built on holiness, that's built on dedication to Jesus and built on dedication to his word. See, a healthy Christian worldview So I think we go back we go back to Isaiah 55 verse 8 where it says my thoughts are nothing like yours says the Lord and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine we talk about that a lot church we don't understand something sometimes we'll say yep his ways are higher than mine I simply don't understand it's common to say that but sometimes when we don't like what the Bible says or we don't disagree we disagree with something we have a tendency to forget that we don't always have to understand everything that's written. We just need to obey what's written. But sometimes we don't have a full understanding, but that doesn't mean we don't have to follow what the Word says. I absolutely love this quote by Jackie Hill Perry. The third thing for your notebook today. If God is holy, then he can't sin. Wait! He wants to hear the message. You lost him, Cole. <laughs> Have fun, Jacob. So I love this quote. It says, if God is holy, then he can't sin. We all agree. God's holy. He can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against you. If he can't sin against you, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? He is. He's the most trustworthy being. He would never sin against us. He would never set out to do something that's not good for us because he can't sin against us. This couple didn't think that God was trustworthy. They didn't think they really could trust God. They didn't think God could provide their needs. They didn't think that God would take care of them. See, what this couple missed was the very fact that sometimes our weaknesses are a commodity that can be used for our own advantage. God wanted to provide the needs that this couple had, this insecurity that they had that would make them lie. God wanted to take care of that for them. But they refused to let God supply all of their needs. I love this definition that Paul gives, and this is the second reason of why this was such a big deal. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, each time he asked, God said, my grace is all that you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to post about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may work through me. My power works best through your weaknesses, through your suffering, through your insecurity, through your grief, through your burden. Whatever struggle you have, God says, that's when my power works best. God wasn't looking for this couple to be perfect. 
He was just looking for them to be honest of how it felt to them on the inside. Because when you can be honest with God about what's going on the inside, then his power works best through him. Our greatest or challenge or our, our greatest challenge or obstacle or insecurity is this invitation for God to come into our life and to give us power. His power works best through our humility to admit the weaknesses that are going on inside. What I love about the early church is we love the stories in the book of Acts. It's incredible. There's huge growth. There's devoted followers. They lived in community. They all cared about each other. We all want to be part of that church. And this is what is really the most remarkable thing. Is that everybody was pretty, everybody was very unqualified by the world's standards. None of those disciples had a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of influence. They didn't have a lot of power. They didn't have a bunch of big fancy degrees. Most of them were fishermen. And they caught the entire world's attention. Why? Because they devoted themselves to Christ. And they devoted themselves to Christ's message for the world. Just to remind you, what is the mission statement for Lake Effect Church? That we would be a people devoted to Christ and his message for the world. That's all it takes. And then God gives you the power of his Holy Spirit. Why did those disciples get the world's attention? Why did they? Because they're devoted to Christ. They were devoted to the message of Christ for the world. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's all that you need. That's all that you need to change the world. But what happens when integrity or a lack of integrity starts to come in the middle of these three things? Suddenly, Peter's going to stop it quickly. Because a lack of integrity is going to slow down what God wants to do in your life. But the third reason why I think this is so important was in this, the, the scripture was in the Bible. But what Luke wants us to know and walk away with is that God is under no obligation to, to defer any judgment. That God's timeline is not my timeline. That God is above any person's timeline. That if God decides it's the day of reckoning or it's the day of judgment, that is up to him. That's not up to my timeline. You see in this passage that suddenly God decides it's time for judgment to this couple and we all think, wow, that's kind of unfair. We don't get to decide that. God's not obligated to have a policy of deferment. But God doesn't use his judgment randomly. This is where you see the beauty of the scripture. I am sure God gave Ananias and Sapphira time to repent. I really do believe he did. You even see Anna, Sapphira was asked the question. She could have said, yeah, I did lie. God gave them time to repent. 
And when you look at the scripture really closely, you see it wasn't random. That there's purpose to this, even though it was harsh. Because verse 11 says that great fear came over the entire church. Now that was a good kind of a fear. That was a fear that is a mixture of the fear of God, the reverence for God, the wow, God really is holy. That's the kind of fear that came over the church, the kind of fear that says, I really need to be right with God. I need to repent of my sins. This wasn't some random, arbitrary act that God did for no purpose. He did it to protect the church, to infuse the church with integrity so they could continue to be a people that loved Jesus and were devoted to his message and were filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is the best part of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 12. What were the results of Peter addressing integrity? What were the results of Peter rooting out integrity? It said the apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers were meeting together in the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats. This is just good. So that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came by the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick into those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. We love that. That's a reason to celebrate. That's a great set of verses. See, sometimes we think if we lower the standards in churches, it would draw more people. That didn't happen in the book of Acts. They raised the standard, and that drew in more people. That's a beautiful scripture. That's strategic. God wanted the church to continue to grow. He wanted the lost reached. He had to get rid of lack of integrity. That was the grace of God to get rid of lack to get rid of the lack of integrity so more people could find Jesus and more people could find healing. That still leaves us with that big question of why did they do that? Why did they sin? We don't have an answer. They didn't give it, they don't, we don't record. Ananias and Sapphira didn't answer. Peter said to him, why did you let Satan fill your heart so you would lie? That's a good question I think we need to answer if you're caught in a repeated sin. Why? Why would you do that? I think Peter wanted them to be able to answer that question because that might have stopped 
the consequence what they what happened to them. I think it's a good question for all of us to ask ourselves when we do things that we know are not right. Why am I doing that? What am I really looking for? Why do I have to do that? Do I think that Jesus can't take care of me in that situation? Why is a good question for us to ask ourselves if we're in a pattern of destruction? So where does this leave us today? You know, Becky said to me while I was preparing the message, she said, are we going back to Lent? You know, we took Lent pretty serious in this church. We did 40 days of Lent, 40 days of scripture journaling. We read a devotional every day. We did Zoom studies. We wanted to make sure we did Lent well this year, and we did. Becky's like, are we going back? Did we not pass? I thought, wow, maybe we are. I thought, all right, better pray about that. So I prayed about it a few days, saying, God, as a church, do we need to go back and do 40 days of Lent again? Did we miss something? But as I prayed, I just kept going back to Acts 4. Acts 4, verse 20. Acts 4, verse 24. After Peter and John were arrested. And the leader said to him, no, don't be preaching anymore. And instead, they came back and all the disciples gathered together and they prayed for more power and more boldness. I think this is what we're supposed to do. I think as a church and a community, we need to be praying Acts 4, verse 24 through 30 together. That this would be our church's prayer for this next season. That God would give us more boldness. And that he would stretch out his hands with healing power. And may miraculous signs and wonders be done through your name. That's what I think we need to do. I think we worked hard during this Easter season of Lent to say, let's get rid of any lack of integrity. Let's work hard. We, you know, we all continue to see, keep sin out of our life. But now I think it's time God's saying, pray for more boldness. Pray for more opportunities to share the gospel. Pray for more opportunities to take risk. We see John and Peter, they took risk. I don't think any of us are going to get severely beaten if we share the gospel with somebody. They were willing to get severely beaten to share the gospel. I think that's what we're supposed to be doing. So this is just the sovereignty of God to bring this group of people in and to share with us what they're doing. And also this last song that they're going to sing is just beautiful and amazing. It just ties into this message so well. So I want, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and then they're going to come up and lead us in this last song. If you want to sit during this song, if you want to stand, if you want to dance, do whatever you will. But this song, use it as a prayer. Use it as a prayer. And then I asked this team to do something for us. I said, would you guys pray for all of us that we become bolder, that we become bigger risk takers? So that's what we're going to do. And then after they're done, 
then I'm going to ask all of them to go in the middle. And as a church, we're going to pray for them that they would be bolder and that they would see more miracles because, you know, they're going from here on a 10-week, 10-week tour. So they're going to pray for us and then we're going to pray for them. But before they sing the song, in your notes is, is Acts 4, verse 24. And it says, when the believers heard the report, all the believers lifted up their voices together in prayer to God. We're going to sort of all lift up our prayers together to God. Responsive reading doesn't work well with me. I'm not that good of a reader to begin with. And when I try to have everybody read along with me, it's a disaster. So I'm going to read out loud. And you're going to just read quietly with me. Because I want to take this prayer serious. So find this in your notes. We're going to start with... O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through your ancestor David, your servant, saying, why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against the Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city for Herod, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing powers. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is our next step. Would you guys lead us in this last song?